0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Gathered for Worship. So turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, God's Word Among God's People.
1: When God's people gather together, they pray and they sing. This singing and praying together is the time when the gathered people of God lean in and they become active participants in worship. But there is another part of worship where we become quiet and absorb. We listen. We learn. It's a time that's given to the Word of God. So for one week, I I thought that talking about the worshiping people of God is worthwhile. You know, I've made mention of the ancient practice of the church to gather together on the first day of the week and worship. And I've said what we do in worship is dictated by God. God has directed his people how it is that they're to approach him. And today I want to talk about the place of God's word among his people. Now, before I do, I want to take you back to a time about 3,400 years ago to a place in a barren, hot, and unforgiving desert. We're going back to Mount Sinai. Israel has miraculously left Egypt after they've seen God devastate the world's greatest power through a series of 10 plagues and God's people have gone free and they've journeyed to Sinai to worship. And as the nation of two million sets up camp before the mountain, Moses, their leader, tells the people that God will come to the nation in a thick cloud and the people will hear God speaking. And in consequence of hearing God speak, they will believe forever. But in order to get ready to be visited by God, Moses gives instructions, everyone's to wash their clothing, appear clean before God. Next, no one's to approach the mountain where God comes down, because if they do so, they'll die. And so they are to wait until the trumpet sounds a long blast, then the nation is to approach the mountain but not touch it. And so the day came, there was thunder and lightning, a very thick cloud enveloped the mountain. People begin to tremble. It wasn't just them that were shaking. The ground beneath their feet was shaking as well. And then God himself descended on Mount Sinai in fire. And then in that awesome moment, something happened that had never happened before. All two million of them heard the voice of God. It wasn't something inner or a mystical feeling. It was real. It was auditory. Everyone in that group heard the voice. And what did God say? Well, God began by saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then right after that, God gave the people the Ten Commandments or the Ten Rules for Holy Living. Now, these were the things that the law-giving God demanded of his people. Well, the first command, you shall have no other gods before me. And then came the second command, the third, all the way through the tenth. And then what happened? Exodus 20:18 and 19. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet in the mountains smoking. The people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Well, they said that because the audible voice of God speaking threatened to tear them apart. They realized that if that continued, they'd all be laid waste. So what was to be done? After all, God is not silent. He is the speaking God. And so the Bible tells us what happened next. Exodus twenty, twenty to 21. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Yeah, Moses, both the prophet of God and the priest, goes up to the mountain to meet with God, and there he will remain to hear the word of God. And those who know the account will know that tragically the people, as they wait for Moses to come back, begin to sin. But for our purposes, I'm not going to explain that part. But notice the words of Exodus 32, 15, and 16. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets." Now, we know that in anger, you know, for the sin of the people, Moses broke those tablets in front of everyone, and it indicates that they had broken the commands of God. But Exodus 34 verse 1 says, The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I'll write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Now, that's the account of the receiving of the first written word of God. So let me then ask you, my listener, to consider several questions. What's the difference between God physically speaking words from Mount Sinai to then writing those very words on stone tablets? Well, you might say, well, one's more dramatic. Well, yeah, that's so. But remember that the voice of God when heard was overwhelming. Psalm 29 says that the voice of God thunders and it's powerful. It breaks the mighty cedars of Lebanon into pieces and it shakes the wilderness. Who can long remain under that voice? But what if the words of God are written down on tablets of stone? Well, are those words any less powerful? And the answer is, no, they're not. And what if the words written on tablets are later copied onto another surface? Are they still the words of God? Yeah, they are. Indeed, they're no less powerful. And that brings us to a very important truth. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it." See, there is a difference between the Word of God and all other words. All other words that have ever been spoken are words of limited power. Yeah, of course. Words have power, and some words actually alter the course of human history. But sometimes, words alter human history in ways that we could not have foreseen, in ways that turn out quite different than they were intended. But here's where the difference is between all human words and the Word of God. Whenever God speaks, His words accomplish precisely that for which God intends it. Whether it's God speaking and the universe comes into being, or God speaking to Pharaoh, commanding a plague, or whether it's Jesus, God in human flesh, speaking to the blind man to regain his sight. All God's words do that for which they are intended. Not one word fails. So let's get back to our theme. I'm talking about the gathered people of God gathering to worship on the first day of the week, and yet yeah, we gather to sing and pray. We direct our words towards God, and then we come to the highlight. This is the moment when God speaks. His words are uttered among us. Today, I want to talk about two ways in which God speaks. Here now is the first. God speaks when his word is read to the congregation. See, do you remember that I said that God tells us how he is to be worshiped? And I will say that God has determined that we should worship him while hearing his word read among us. See, the history of the reading of the word, it goes all the way back to the time of Moses. Listen to Deuteronomy 31, 9 to 12. There we read, Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord and all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years at the set time of the year of release at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law. Now, that practice of assembling to hear the red word of God, well, that goes back that far. But was that practice repeated in the New Testament church? And the answer is, yeah, most assuredly it was. So let's start by acknowledging that Jesus himself read the scripture when he worshiped in the synagogue. We know that's true because Luke 4 tells us that he attended the synagogue in Nazareth and that they gave him a scroll and he opened it and he read from Isaiah chapter 61. And then after having read that word without a comment, he rolls it up, he gives it back to the synagogue attendant, and then he sat down. And it was only after all of that that he began to teach them. The New Testament church did exactly that. Paul, writing to Timothy regarding the pastoral duties in the church in Ephesus, writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, verse 13, and he says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. It was an expectation that in each service of worship, there would be a time laid aside when Scripture was to be read. And so we need to consider, since God is the speaking God, And since the written word of God, which is of course the Bible, it's the actual record of the words of God. So therefore the reading of scripture is that time in the service when the congregation settles down and without the interruption of what people think about the word, they simply quiet themselves to listen as God speaks among them. That's a very holy moment.
0: This month on Back to the Bible Canada, we express gratitude to our monthly partners and earnestly celebrate all those who privilege this ministry with their gracious support every month. Your consistent gift ensures Bible teaching and engagement resources continue to be offered through a wide variety of mediums across Canada and around the globe. We invite you to join our 1119 Fellowship monthly partner program, and in so doing, You'll not only help to sustain and grow this ministry, but in appreciation each year, you'll receive our annual scripture calendar, a copy of an annual CD series, and an exclusive 15% discount on all of our Bible teaching and engagement resources. For more information on becoming an 1119 Fellowship monthly partner or to join, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. It's
1: very clear that when the apostles and prophets wrote the New Testament, that God's people immediately recognized that those writings were in fact scripture. They were the word of God. Peter in 2 Peter 3 verse 16 warns against those who try to distort what Paul had been writing. And Peter says they also try to do that with the other scriptures. So clearly Peter knows that what Paul is writing is scripture. And in 1 Timothy 5 verse 18, well, Paul, in his writings, quotes Luke 10, verse 7, calls that sacred scripture. And I mention that so that we won't fall into the trap of thinking that the New Testament was only deemed to be scripture, that is, the word of God, hundreds of years later. That's demonstrably not true. In fact, it was immediately recognized for what it was, that it was the word of God. Now, having said that, let's go to Colossians 4, verse 16, and listen to Paul's instructions. It says, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. See, all the New Testament was to be read in the churches. That is, the church of Jesus is commanded to become quiet and hear the word of God being read to them. Now, how has the church practiced this? Well Brian Chapel comments on it he he says sensing the continued respect of the apostolic authors for the older scriptures that is the old testament the church continued publicly reading from both testaments in the early centuries of the christian era by the end of the 4th century the dominant liturgical practice included three readings, one from the Old Testament and two from the New, an epistle and a gospel. That is, they would read one passage from the life of Christ, then another from the rest of the New Testament. So we need to pause and consider that practice and compare that to our own contemporary experiences. You know, in some churches today, there is no public reading of Scripture at all. The sermon may consist of a number of scripture allusions, but never is the congregation simply silenced to give honor to the fact that God has spoken and let him speak and everyone else be silent. See, I'm calling us back to the practice of the public reading of scripture. In some churches, that's done by the pastor, but in other churches, that practice is done by a number of other people in the congregation. And I like that idea. But Brian Chapel warns us that it must be done well. See, how sad it would be for the reader of God's words to stumble over God's words or to miss out some words that are written or to to mumble through the text in a way that can't be easily heard or understood. See, I'm convinced that when it comes to the public reading of Scripture, that it must be done with a sense that properly reflects what it is that's happening. The Word of God is being read. It's a profound moment for it is God who is speaking among us. Now, I know we're not standing before Mount Sinai, but we are standing as God's people and hearing his very words. And for that reason, there are a number of churches that will actually ask their congregation to stand in honor of the reading of the word of God. And furthermore, other churches will repeat rehearsed words. I mean, after the word is read, the reader will then end by announcing, this is the word of the Lord, and to that the congregation will respond, thanks be to God. But let me say a few more things about those who actually read the Scripture. Chapel, in his excellent book, Christ-Centered Worship, makes some helpful suggestions. He says that the readers of the Scripture should only be those who understand their Bible well and have actually studied the text they're reading. Now that might seem to be a tall order, but, but Chapel says that the pitch of the voice, the pauses, the tempo, the force of the voice, the emotion and so forth is so very important to that moment. Some churches may even wish to, to train people that actually formally read the word of God. Lance, in his book, Reading the Bible Aloud, says that the one who reads must yield himself or herself to the scripture's power and to communicate their own response of the power of scripture to the listening audience. You know, in short, I'm saying, That the public reading of scripture can be a moment of great holiness and of great expectation and it might surprise some of my listeners to know that there have been those who have argued that we shouldn't even be preaching we should simply be listening to the word for that word alone is life transforming well yeah that's true hearing the word is life transforming but god also commands that not only must the word of god be read but it must also be preached now I spent most of my time on simply the reading because I think that's what's so often lacking in contemporary churches. But preaching is also mandated. 2 Timothy 4, 1-2, again, Paul's commanding Timothy regarding his duty among the assembled people of God, and he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. There's so much I could say about the nature of Christian preaching. But here's the bottom line. No contemporary preacher is an apostle or a prophet. We who preach have but one task. We're supposed to become so aware of the writings of the apostles and the prophets so that when we explain their writings to the congregation, it's as if the apostles and prophets themselves were among us. And that's the nature of New Testament preaching. The modern preacher has no right at all to express his ideas regarding anything. Neither has he the right to use the pulpit as a bully pulpit you know, finally getting, you know, to tell people in public what he was too cowardly to tell them in private. And furthermore, the pulpit is not to be used as the platform for private revelation. That is, the pulpit is being abused if the modern preacher tells of what he feels the Lord has told him personally. Now, when I say that, don't misunderstand me. I don't mean to imply that God can't or won't speak to us personally and privately, but such communication, whatever we make of it, is never the subject of our preaching. According to Paul, preaching exists but for one thing, the preaching of the Word of God or the preaching of the Bible. And from the very time after the apostolic era, that is, from the time the apostles died, the preachers in the early church gave their pulpits to explaining not themselves, but Scripture. So what is biblical preaching? Well, The Bible preacher will have a text that he wishes to expound. No, uh, he's not there to indicate some topic that interests him and then provide scriptural proofs of why he's right about something. Neither is the preacher to respond to what has, you know, of recent been called, you know, the felt needs of the hearer. He's not interested in that. The preacher is to preach the word. Therefore, he has before him a text. You know, in my over 35 years in the pulpit, in in deference to this, you know, when someone asked me, what are you going to preach on next Sunday? I'd always reply by giving the actual text that I would study that week that I would try to explain next Sunday. And if someone asked me, well, what's it going to be about? I'd say, well, how do I know? I haven't studied the text yet. So I had a habit. I would, on one day of the week, study the text. I disciplined myself never to ask how this would preach, but only to ask, what does it mean? What's the main idea of the text? What grammatical nuances should I be aware of? What historical background should I consider? And how does the text hang together? That is, did I know the difference between the main point and the subpoints? But There are also other questions about a text. How does it fit into the whole that is in the entire book out of which it came and still more? How is this text related to the gospel of Jesus? I mean, what does it teach about redemption and grace and about our salvation? And then, and only then, When that was completed, I would get a second go at the text. And on the second occasion, I'd ask, how do I make this into a sermon in a way that's relevant for God's people and increases their faith? You know, preaching is a mountainous task. It takes work and ability to concentrate over a long period of time. But the end of the task is that God's people have not only heard the word of God read, but they've also heard one portion of the word explained so that they know how to trust, how to submit, what truths to believe, and how to understand the God who they know. Because preaching is so great a task, and because there's a constant temptation on the part of the preacher to take shortcuts or to abuse the office, And we also know that Satan comes to harass the preacher, for he knows that the preaching of the word causes people to come to Christ and repent of their sins and glory in the one true and only God. So much is at stake. And for that reason, for that reason, my dear listener, you need to be praying constantly for your preaching pastor. You need to recognize that he's struggling with spiritual warfare and with a multitude of distractions that would take him from this task encourage him. So, God's people worship. We're commanded to do it, and it's a wonderful thing to do. We were created for worship, for in this restless heart of ours, our rest is found when we worship the one true God in the way in which he has designed for us to approach him. What a blessedness.
0: Thanks for your message, John. Let me ask you, do you think there should be more time spent reading Scripture for the exclusive purpose of reading Scripture? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, well, certainly, if the Scripture is what it claims to be, the Word of the living God, and if the Scripture also promises us, as you know, I've used the example from Isaiah, that uh, the Word of God will never return void, so we have to believe that there is a spiritual benefit could not get it anywhere else unless we silence ourselves and simply listen as the Word of God is being read without comment. And so we allow it to speak for itself and just believe that God will penetrate hearts and and, and watch what God begins to do. But apart from even that, I think simply hearing the word of God being read and then maybe responding by saying, you know, thus says the Lord or something of that nature, that, you know, you you do ingrain in people this deep, heartfelt respect for the word of God. Let every mouth be stopped. Let everyone just be quiet now. Let there be silence in the room. And let's just listen because the word of God just stops us from
0: speaking, and we're stunned at the greatness of what we're reading. That's what I think we should be doing. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow for our concluding message of the series Gathered for Worship right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. One of our favorite aspects of being a multimedia Bible broadcasting association is getting to connect with such a wide audience. Not only do we want you to hear our broadcasts, but we want to hear from you too. If you've been encouraged by our Bible teaching and engagement resources, we would love to hear about it. Dave recently wrote, I have learned so much from the teachings of this ministry, which in turn has helped me lead my family spiritually. Thank you to all involved in making this happen. Donating to the cause is a small thing I can do in return for all the hard work that you put into it. So let us know how the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again and in Doubt have impacted your life. Email us at info@backtothebible.ca at or visit backtothebible.ca and click on contact and leave your message there, or simply call one 800 663 2425.